If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Page 706, if you're using the Pew Bible this morning. We're finishing this letter this morning. And I hope it's been beneficial and challenging, convicting, um, encouraging for you as we've gone through this letter of 2 Peter. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through the end of the book today, but uh, as we get into our passage, if we'll begin reading in verse 11. So we'll read chapter 3, verse, uh, verses 11 through the end of the book. So if you've found your place, if you'll stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Second Peter, chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. This is what the Apostle, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to the churches even today. He says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the, com the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability." but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter. I pray that you will use it this morning to convict and to comfort. I pray we'll be strengthened. God, grant me wisdom and strength this morning to communicate accurately the scriptures. And may your spirit cause your word to have its full effect. Cause our hearts to believe. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At... 8 a.m. on February 11th, 1861, despite a heavy rain, a large crowd came to the train station in Springfield, Illinois, to see Abraham Lincoln off. He would soon board a special presidential train that would carry him away from his home state, his friends and his neighbors, and take him to Washington, D.C., where he would be inaugurated on March 4th as the 16th president of a fractured nation. Already, seven states had seceded from the Union. A war which would claim over 600,000 lives would begin within months, and he didn't know when or if he would ever see home again. Taking to the raised platform and removing his hat, Lincoln spoke these words. My friends, no one, not in my situation, can appreciate my feeling of sadness at this parting. To this place and the kindness of these people, I owe everything. Here I have lived a quarter of a century and have passed from a young to an old man. Here my children have been born and one is buried. I now leave, not knowing when or whether ever I may return, 
with a task before me greater than that which rested upon Washington. Without the assistance of the divine being who ever attended him, I cannot succeed. With that assistance, I cannot fail. Trusting in him who can go with me and remain with you and be everywhere for good, let us confidently hope that all will yet be well. To his care commending you, as I hope in your prayers you will commend me, I bid you an affectionate farewell. In this, which is known as his farewell speech, Lincoln acknowledges the enormous task before him. He calls to his friends to pray for him, and he entrusts himself and them to God. Unbeknownst to him, Lincoln would never lay his eyes on Springfield again. What we have in our text before us today is another farewell of sorts. These are the last recorded words of Peter. Not long after penning this letter, history tells us that Peter was arrested and crucified in Rome. He would never see these brothers and sisters to whom he was writing ever again in this life. And like Lincoln, Peter was facing a daunting task as false teachers were infiltrating the churches. If the dangers in Lincoln's time were terrible, the threats in Peter's were even more dire. Lincoln was faced with the task of preserving the Union. Peter was writing to defend the church. The fate of souls hung in the balance. Lincoln's farewell to Illinois revealed his affection for his home. Peter's final words demonstrate to us what he found most important as his life drew to an end. Peter has urged these Christians to pursue a godly life. He has warned them of the danger of false teachers. And he's reminded them of the second coming of Christ. And now as he draws his letter to a close with his last words, he brings to their mind the the major themes of the entire letter. And once again, he urges them to action. Because this letter is it's not simply here to bolster our biblical knowledge. It's not simply here to, to fill our heads. It's meant to stir us to action. You are expected to read this letter, to believe it, and then to obey it and to demonstrate that in your lives. He stirred them up by way of reminder, and, and now he's going to leave them with four final commands that really summarize the entire letter. He, he's going to bring together all the various themes and ideas of his letter into these five verses with four final commands, four final imperatives. And, and the church needs to heed these final commands. And we need to heed them as well. Not to come to this letter simply as a religious exercise. We're not here simply to, to perform our weekly duty before we go out and do something else the rest of the week. We're here to hear the word of the Lord. And we're here to understand and to believe and then to apply this to our lives and then to leave this place so that we might obey we need these words we need these final commands you need to hear today because even though we're separated by almost 2,000 years the circumstances and the threats in which we find ourselves are very similar to those in which our brothers and sisters here experienced and so we need to be careful to pay attention to these four final commands. These four final commands, I, I think you'll find them to be very clear. You'll find them very simply in our text before us in verses 14 through 18. They are these. Be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. Count the patience of Jesus' salvation. Take care not to be carried away. And finally, grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. Five verses, four commands. If you haven't been paying attention to the previous nine sermons on this book, today's your day. Because 
Uh, this, these final verses are going to summarize everything for you. But they're for us to pay attention so that we might obey. So let's look again at these four final commands, beginning in verse 14. The first command for us to remember is be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. We are awaiting people. We are awaiting people. We're waiting for Jesus to come personally, visibly, bodily. We're waiting for the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of the godly. We are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Therefore, verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, the coming of Christ, the the judgment and salvation, the new heavens and new earth, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We looked at this last week. In light of Christ's second coming at the end of this age, we are to pursue holiness and godliness. Look again at verse 11. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, since the world, the cosmos, the universe, everything that you you know, everything you have ever known is going to be dissolved, violently broken apart at the coming of Christ, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? There is no doubt that believers are called to a certain kind of behavior. Not as a means of salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. I couldn't help but hear that theme over and over and over again in the songs we were singing today. Jesus paid it all. Not some. All. We're we're not saved by our works. We are saved by the works of Christ And so we're not called to a certain kind of behavior as if shape up, clean yourself up, and then come to Jesus and he'll save you. We're saved by faith alone. Come to Christ. Come with with your sin. Come with your weakness. Come with your failure. Come Come with your rebellion and lay it all down at the foot of the cross and find full and free forgiveness in the blood of Jesus alone. And he saves all who come to him. But believers, believers, those who have come to Jesus, they are called to a certain kind of behavior as evidence of this salvation. Good works should flow out of a believer, out of the the new, regenerate heart. You've come to Christ. Christ has freed you from sin. He's not only forgiven you of your, your sin, he's not only taken away your guilt, but through the power of his cross, he has broken the power of sin in your life. And since the power of sin has been broken in your life, now you are called to a new kind of life. A new kind of life which is evidence of salvation. Genuine conversion from the the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's own beloved son means leaving your, your dead, worthless actions in order to pursue righteousness. The false teachers were described in chapter 2, verse 13 as blots and blemishes. They were living only for physical pleasure. They were denying a a future judgment. They were denying the second coming. And and they were denying this in order that they might pursue whatever their hearts desired. Whatever their, their worldly pleasures drove them to. But believers are to be found without spot or blemish. Get rid of these worldly desires. That that's not our pursuit. That's not our goal. And this is sacrificial language. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. This is sacrificial language. A sacrifice. You can go back to Leviticus and Numbers. You can see time and time again the description of the kind of sacrifices that that Israel was supposed to bring to the Lord. 
They were supposed to bring sacrifices that were to be without blemish or without defect. You don't bring a lamb who's, that's lame. You don't bring a blind lamb. You don't bring one that's sick or unhealthy. You bring the best. And so, as Christians, who Paul describes in Romans chapter 12 as living sacrifices, we are to be those who are found without spot or blemish. We don't give to God the leftovers. We don't give him the dregs of our lives. We are to give him our best. Genuine Christianity cost us something. Do you remember what David said in 2 Samuel? He sinned against God by taking a, a census. And God punished Israel because of David's sin. And, and David went to build an altar. And he went to this threshing floor. And this is where he was going to build the altar. And he comes to, to this threshing floor that's owned by someone else. And, and the owner is going to give him everything. I'll give you the threshing floor. I'll give you, here's the oxen. You can, you can have it so that you can offer sacrifices. You remember what David said when, when this man offered to give him everything? He said, far be it from me to offer something to God that didn't cost me something. Christianity costs something. Believer, you are called to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. You're called to die to yourself and follow after Christ. Christianity demands something from you, not as a means to, to be accepted before God. Christian, you will never be more acceptable to God than you are right now in Christ Jesus. But as evidence of, of this life-changing event, you have been born again. Now you live as new creations. And Peter here, he says, since we're waiting for these things, since we're waiting for the second coming, we are to be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. This takes us back to chapter 1. It takes us back to chapter 1. Look, look there. Verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. The word's translated differently, but it's the same word that we find in, in chapter 3, verse 14. For this very reason, make every effort. Be diligent. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Make every effort to, to supplement your faith, to grow in your faith, to grow in, in holiness, in righteousness, in godliness. This requires of you blood, sweat, and tears. You have to make every effort. Christianity is not the lazy man's religion. You can't just show up, go through your duties, and go home. Christianity demands a living sacrifice. This is a faith that demonstrates and proves itself through good works. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. That it's the same word that's found in chapter 3. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. How do you confirm your calling and election? You evidence it through your good works. You evidence it through verses 5 through 7. You make every effort to supplement your faith with these qualities. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We make every effort. We are to be diligent, to be found without spot or blemish. 
But we do this because Christ, the Lamb of God, without blemish or spot, has been slain for sinners. Christ has been slain for you. Through faith, by the grace of God, you've come to Christ. And the blood of Christ washes away every sin. Every, every spot, every blemish, every stain, all of it is taken by Christ. And you're clothed with a righteousness that is not your own. You stand before God fully justified in his sight because of the finished work of Christ. You're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And the call of the scripture is to be who you already are. To be who you already are. You are, are holy. Be holy. Be diligent to be found with, by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent to pursue holiness. This is who we are in Christ Jesus. And this is the first command that Peter wants to remind us of. Be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. We see the second command in verses 15 and 16. Count the patience of Jesus as salvation. Look at what he says. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. The false, the false teachers, they were counting the Lord's delay as slow and therefore as evidence that he's not coming. We looked at this at the beginning of chapter 3. But we, on the other hand, are to count him as patient. And that patience is meant to lead us to repentance. Jesus will come back. Objective truth. Count on it. Jesus will come. The fact that it's been almost 2,000 years, it, it isn't meant for you to doubt or to take Jesus' absence as a reason to live immorally. Rather, it's evidence of his amazing patience. I can be impatient with my children. And I imagine if you have children that there have been times when you've been impatient as well. They, they don't obey the first time. You have to tell them over and over and over again. And what, what happens? I've had it up to here, right? You run out of patience. And what happens when you run out of patience? Become angry? Say things that we shouldn't say? We can be overbearing? Praise God, God's patience is long-suffering towards us. So that we, you, might repent. It's not to, to leave you doubting. It's for, it's, it's for you to have time to repent so that you'll be saved. Even today, you're here, you're living, you're, you're breathing, you're hearing the word of God. It's evidence of God's long suffering towards you. And so flee from your sin and run to Jesus. D do what the song told us to do this morning. Flee from your sin, leave it, abandon it, and run to Christ while there's time. While there is still time, while God is still being, being patient with you. Because one day judgment will come. But here in verse 15 and 16, he brings up Paul. And it is an interesting shift. You might wonder, why is he doing this? Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Why is he bringing up Paul here? Why, why all of a sudden does one apostle bring up another apostle? The false teachers are likely distorting Paul's message of grace. Romans chapter 3 verse 28, Paul says, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
Galatians chapter one, 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul is all about grace. We are saved by grace apart from works. You don't earn your way into the kingdom of God. You can't keep the law enough so that God will, will suddenly accept you into the kingdom. And so you can imagine that the false teachers are hearing this and they're twisting it and they're distorting it so that they can live however they want. This was evident from Paul's writings itself. Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Taking false teachers' words in his own mouth, he says, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? So, even in Paul's own letters, he's saying, people are hearing what I'm saying and they're twisting it so that they can live sensual, immoral lives. Peter is saying, this is what's happening. Paul's writing, and these false teachers, he says in verse 16, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. The, the false teachers, they distort Paul's teaching to promote their immorality. They use God's patience as a reason to not fear a future judgment. And Peter is drawing this out. He's, he's, he's turning the churches to which he's writing, he's turning their attention to this this idea that the false teachers, they're, they're twisting Paul's words. You can imagine that, that the false teachers are coming into these churches and they've got Paul's letters and they say, look here, Paul says, Christ has set us free. So don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't listen to, to these, these guys who are saying, don't go to the idol temple. Don't, don't worry about sexual immorality. You've been set free. You're not saved by these things. You're saved by grace. And so they're twisting Paul's words and making him say things that he's not saying. And so Peter's drawing their attention to this because this could be very, very dangerous. This could be something that would destabilize the churches. Peter is saying you're supposed to live holy lives. You're supposed to be diligent to be found without spot or blemish and but, but we've got Paul's letters over here, and, and these, these, these guys over here, they're, they're saying, well, look at what Paul says. And, and so they're, they're contradicting each other. I'm going to go with Paul because Paul tells me I can live however I want to live. And Peter, he's this prude that's telling me I can't go out and have a good time. And so Peter, he brings up Paul, and he draws out four important points for us. Four important points that we need to remember here in these two verses as he's talking about Paul. We need to remember these because they'll, they'll serve to remind us of the truths about the scripture, but they'll also serve as an apologetic or a defense of our faith as we look at these. Four things here in these, these two verses. So if you take notes, these are, these are sub-points, right? So here's four things that, that Peter draws out here in these two verses. The first thing is that there are some difficult things in Paul's letters. Isn't that what he says? He says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. This gets me every time. I, I love this. Just the irony of Peter saying this. I mean, Peter has, has written about fallen angels being cast into prisons of darkness. Uh, I just go back to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, and I think, I wonder if Paul thought the same thing about Peter's writings, that there's some difficult things in Peter's writings too. There are some difficult things in Paul's writings. And I don't think we have to try to be arrogant when we come to the scriptures and say, oh yeah, I've got it all figured out. Because even Peter is saying, there's some, there's some difficult things in Paul's writings. And I think this can be a relief to us. The 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith in 
chapter 1, paragraph 7. <coughs> it reads, Some things in Scripture are clearer than others, and some people understand the teachings more clearly than others. However, the things that must be known, believed, and obeyed for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of Scripture or another that both the educated and uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding of them by properly using ordinary measures. So even the Second London Confession of Faith says there, there are clear passages and there are less clear passages. And some people have a, a better understanding of some passages than others. However, the things that are central, the things that are absolutely vital for salvation, the doctrine of who God is, the doctrine of Christ and the atonement, the resurrection, the second coming, how we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, justification apart from works, all of these things are so clearly set out that everyone can get it. <coughs> everyone can get it. Every, everyone can understand this. Whether you've, you have a seminary level education or, or uh, an eighth grade level education, you can understand these things because they've been sufficiently and plainly laid out for us. But it's okay for us to come to portions of scripture and say, I, I have a hard time with this. This isn't as clear as I would like it to be. All you have to do is look at the book of Revelation. Why are there so many different interpretations? Because some portions of scripture are not as clear as others. But the second thing that Peter draws out for us is that misinterpreting is not acceptable. There may be difficult things in Paul's letters, but you can't twist it and distort it to make it say whatever you want it to say. <coughs> Remember, he says there are some things that are difficult to understand, not all things that are difficult to understand. He doesn't make the difficult things an excuse for misinterpreting or ignoring what Paul is saying. Because he says that the ignorant and unstable are twisting Paul's words to make them say what they're not supposed to say. All you have to do is, is compare scripture with scripture. You let the clear passages of scripture interpret the less clear passages of scripture. And the scriptures don't contradict each other. Paul is very clear when he says that we're supposed to live a certain way. <coughs> Excuse me. The ignorant and the unstable are twisting and distorting Paul. They're taking scripture like it's a wax nose and they're just twisting it wherever they want it to go. They want to be able to live their immoral lives. They want to be able to chase after their own sensual pleasures and passions. And so they make Paul say it. They make Paul agree with what they already believe. And Peter says they do this deliberately in chapter 3 verse 5 but they also do this to their own destruction. They're doing this, and it's not innocent. It's not accidental. They're doing this deliberately. They're taking portions of Paul, and they're twisting it so that they can suit their own lifestyle. And they do this to their own destruction. And what we need to understand is what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Paul writes, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has, understand, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The point of that passage is that we understand the, the scripture because the spirit enables us to understand. But the, the minds of unbelievers are so darkened by their own sinful desires that they are unable to understand the scriptures apart from the work of the Spirit. And so we should expect that unbelievers are going to twist and distort the words of the apostles to make it fit with whatever they want. <coughs> but we need to be careful with the scriptures, interpreting it according to context according to the intent of the apostles according to the fact that scripture does not contradict other scripture and trusting at all times for the spirit to lead us into truth <coughs> the third thing that peter draws out is that he and paul are in agreement he and paul are in agreement he says count the patience of our lord of salvation just as our beloved brother paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them of these matters the false teachers are accusing paul of saying something different than peter don't listen to peter because listen to paul paul says you can you're set free to live however you want don't listen to to peter but Peter here is saying that Paul is not saying anything different from what he is saying. Despite a, a controversy they had in Galatians chapter 2, Peter still calls Paul a beloved brother. And all we have to do is, is look at places like Galatians chapter 5 with the fruit of the Spirit or Ephesians chapter 4 to understand that, that Paul is saying the same thing that Peter is saying. Peter is saying that now that you've been redeemed, now that you've been born again, now that you've, you've come to know Christ, be diligent to pursue holiness and godliness. And Paul is saying the same thing. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. <coughs> he says in verse 17 of chapter 4 that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He tells them in verse 22 to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is saying the same things that Peter is saying. Peter is saying you must be diligent to pursue holiness. Paul is saying the same thing. They are in agreement. There is no contradiction. There is no, no fighting between the apostles. They are writing in unison. Pursue holiness. Put off the old sinful self. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind through the word of God. And then put on righteousness. Put on holiness. And the fourth thing that he brings out, which is so amazing is that Paul's writings have the same authority as the Old Testament. Paul's writings have the same authority as the Old Testament. He says there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. What other scriptures is he talking about? Well, this word that's translated as scriptures is used 50 times in the New Testament, and it always refers to the Old Testament. What Peter is saying is that the false teachers, they are twisting the words of Paul. And it shouldn't surprise us. That's what they do with the Old Testament. They take the Old Testament and they twist it as well. The apostles were aware that they were speaking and writing authoritatively from God. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, 
you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This is what Jesus promised to the apostles in John 14, 26, when he promised that the spirit would teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. Peter expresses this same idea of authority in chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, as his apostolic testimony is making, causing the Old Testament scriptures to be made more sure. So all of this to say that the false teachers, they're twisting the words of Paul, but, but Peter is bringing out the fact that Paul is not saying anything different. There is unity within the apostolic writings. And even though there are difficult things in Paul's letters, not all of it is difficult. And we must be careful lest we find ourselves misinterpreting or misapplying Paul's words. Because Paul's writings have the same authority as the Old Testament. And if we wouldn't be found twisting and distorting and and misinterpreting the Old Testament, we ought to be careful not to misinterpret the New Testament. And so the first two commands that we find here that we're to be diligent, to be found without spot or blemish. Second, we're supposed to count the patience of Jesus as salvation and repent. The third command is found in verse 17. Take care not to be carried away. Take care not to be carried away. Look at verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Knowing this beforehand, knowing what beforehand? Knowing that false teachers are going to arise, chapter 2, verse 1. Know beforehand that they're going to come with their scoffing because they want to follow their own sinful passions and desires, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And knowing beforehand that they're going to twist the scriptures. They're going to twist the apostolic witness, and they're going to twist the Old Testament scriptures. And so Peter tells them, take care, because being forewarned is to be forearmed. This word, take care, it, it, it's beware, look out, protect yourself, guard yourself. This is an active verb. This is not something you can passively do. You must actively look out for yourself. You are to actively protect yourself and guard yourself. Peter doesn't treat these false teachers like their neighbors who just need to borrow a cup of sugar. He treats them like they're intruders who are trying to break down the door to kill you and steal all of your possessions. You don't take this lightly. You don't treat this as if it's a non-threat. You treat this as if this is imminent. They are coming. And so you actively prepare yourself. You actively defend against them. You actively gather together your resources so that you can battle them and you can make sure that you can drive them away because if you don't take it seriously, they're going to succeed. This, all throughout this letter, the threat of the false teachers is treated as imminent And it's treated as deadly. This is not a game. This is not meant for us to say this and that. That will never happen here. It will never happen here. Could false teachers ever infiltrate this church? Christ Fellowship Church? I mean, we've taken... All the steps. We, we sing good music. We've got good preaching. Got good Sunday school classes. We've got good teachers. We've got good elders. We've got good deacons. Could false teachers ever infiltrate here? If you say no, you are a fool. All it takes is for us to ignore this verse. That's all it takes. Don't grow lazy and complacent. Don't grow comfortable. Uh, Yes, I think that we have a great church. I would say this. I think we have the best church in Lawton. It's not because I'm standing up here. I think we have a great church. I, I think we have a fantastic church. God has blessed us. 
the threat to us is real. It's real. And all we have to do is look at verse 17 and say it will never happen here. We must actively guard against this. Take care so that you won't be carried away by error and lose your stability. See, Peter is writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians that that he says in verse 12 of chapter 1 that he knows that they know these truths and that they're established in the truth. He's not writing to people who are being wishy-washy. He's saying, I know that you already know this. Knowing that you already are established, I'm going to remind you. I'm going to remind you, lest you lose your stability. The false teachers, chapter 2, verse 14, he tells us that they entice unsteady souls. And so they must take care, they must be on their guard, lest they be carried away and lose the stability that Peter says they have. This word lose, it's translated in Acts chapter 27 as run aground. It's being shipwrecked. False teaching is like a violent flood that that sweeps the unaware away and it shipwrecks them. but Peter's audience isn't unaware. They've been warned. And so having been warned, they must take all precautions. Take care, guard yourself, lest you be shipwrecked. Swept away, shipwrecked. The comfort that we can have, the encouragement we can have is that we are being guarded Dave read it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, that God guards us. Jude 24, he will, he will guard us, he will keep us. But that doesn't mean that we aren't to take, make every effort to be diligent, to guard ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. like warning signs at the Grand Canyon that say, don't walk this far, you'll fall off the cliff and die. Heed the warnings and don't fall off the cliff. Peter here is warning you. It's not abstract, it's not hypothetical. He's saying to you, take care lest you be swept away and lose your stability. It's a warning that you need to take seriously. And it's the third command that Peter gives to us here. Take care not to be carried away. The fourth and final command is found in verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Being diligent Counting his patience as salvation and taking care against false teaching, it's it's not a task that's left up to our own ingenuity and our own effort and our good intentions. The prescription to combat the virus of heresy is found here in, in verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Let's take those separately. Grow in grace. The Christian life, it begins with God's grace, right? The Christian life begins with God's grace. We see that in verse 1 of chapter 1, going back to the beginning of the letter, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's grace. You've obtained this This faith that leads to your salvation, not by your works, but by grace. It's found by the the righteousness of Jesus. The error of some is that thinking that grace is the gate 
instead of grace being the whole house. Grace is not just how you enter into the Christian life. The whole of Christian life is all of grace. It's all dependent on grace. I like the quote from commentator Tom Schreiner. He says, grace is the foundation of the lives of believers and is entirely God's gift. And yet believers are exhorted to grow in it, to be nurtured in it, and to be strengthened by it. Grace is not a static reality. Believers are to grow in it until the day they die. Other words, they might, otherwise they might be carried away by the lawlessness of the false teachers. How will you avoid false teaching? How will you avoid lawlessness and immorality? How, how will you escape from a wicked world that wants to conform you into its own image? By remembering the grace of God in the gospel. Reciting and meditating upon it daily. Remembering all that God has done for you. Looking to Jesus as your supreme treasure and your supreme love and your supreme joy and growing in this. Let the gospel be magnified in your heart, in your mind, in your affections. Let your love for Jesus grow and grow until it pushes out all other competing loves. You want to avoid false teaching? then be nourished in God's grace. You want to avoid immorality? You want to avoid all the, the sexual impurity that is just saturating our culture? Look to Christ, love Jesus, grow in this grace that you have from him. Let your, your, your roots go down deep into God's grace. We're also supposed to grow in knowledge. Knowledge has been all over this letter. Chapter 1, verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's Peter's prayer that grace might be multiplied to you. Now at the end of the, of the book, he wants you to grow in that grace. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 5. We're supposed to supplement our faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, it would have been better if the false teachers had never had this knowledge rather than to have known it and then gone away from it. Who is this knowledge about? It's about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't stop growing in knowledge. There is a rabid anti-intellectualism in the West, in the evangelical church. I remember when I told some people I was going to seminary, they scoffed at me. What do you need to go to seminary for? We've got everything we need right here in this small little country church. You don't need to grow in knowledge. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. The, the, the common criticism is that doctrine divides. As if just don't, don't learn doctrine. Just ignore doctrine so that we can have unity. Doctrine does divide. It, it divides the sheep from the goats. It divides the church from the true believers and the false believers. But if you don't grow in that knowledge, there will be no division between the saints and, and the lost. A lack of knowledge opens the door to false teaching. I read a tweet, and I'm just going to have to paraphrase it. I, I just ran across it a couple of days ago. As Jay and I, were, we recorded our podcast on uh, the growing number of, of women pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention. I ran across this tweet, I think on Friday. It said, women, these, these 
women false teachers, they're counting on you not knowing your Bible. They're counting on it. And so they can give you these, these weird pseudo-mystical stories that sound really good and tug on your heartstrings, but they have no depth to their doctrine. They're destructive to you. Grow in your knowledge because a lack of knowledge, it just opens the door wide for you to believe anything that these false teachers are peddling. And where does this knowledge come from? Is it whatever we think is right? Whatever we feel is right? Just follow your heart. Are we going to go the route of the Mormons and it's got to be this burning in our bosom? Chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Peter brings it all together. The prophetic word of the Old Testament and the apostolic witness of the New Testament. Your Bible is the source of knowledge. You want to grow in knowledge? Get in your Bible. When a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, says that only 144,000 will enter into the new Jerusalem. That Jesus didn't bodily rise, but had a spirit body while his physical body was assumed into heaven. When they start talking about all the good works that you have to do, including going door to door, how are you going to answer them? When a Mormon says that Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan, that saints will bring palm branches and their good works before God on the last day. When Muslims accuse us of tritheism, of worshiping three gods, or when they accuse us of the unforgivable sin of shirk for believing that God has a son, what are you going to say? When an atheist says that the God of the Bible is evil, how are you going to answer? Grow in knowledge. Grow in knowledge. It's found in the scriptures. You must grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the pages of the word. We have to grow in grace and in knowledge. Be planted in grace. Let, let it be the soil of your life. And, and through the knowledge of Christ in the scriptures, water that soil so that, that established in grace and watered by knowledge, you grow and bloom and bear fruit for the glory of God. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And that's where the letter ends. It ends with glory. It ends with glory. It ends with a doxology. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. This is a great verse that, that shows that Peter believed that Jesus is God. You don't give a, a doxology, doxology to a creature. This is worship to Jesus, God. Glory to him. God says, I will not give my glory to another. And here's Peter giving glory. Who's he giving glory to? The second person of the Trinity. The Son of God. Christ the Lord. This doxology, it reminds us of our entire dependence on Jesus. We're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory Not to you, not to your efforts, not to your work, not, not to how smart you are. You are such a brilliant Christian. Glory goes to, to you. All glory goes to Jesus alone. It gives us hope. It gives us hope that, that Jesus will provide all the grace we need to obey. And he will keep us to the day of eternity. His second coming. 
We're told these four commands, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. We're told to count the patience of our Lord as salvation, to take care lest we be carried away, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. But we've got to circle back to verse 3 of chapter 1 and be reminded of this. That everything that God commands of us Everything that's required of us, God has already given us. He's already provided everything we need. His divine power. Whose divine power? Jesus's. Jesus's divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. See how the commands come at the end? The front is all about Jesus and what he's done for us in the gospel and this, you have everything that you need. You have everything you need through his precious and very great promises. So now based upon what Jesus has done for us, go forth and live obedient lives all to his glory. These are Peter's final written words. He was aware that his time was short. What did he consider important? As he knew his days were coming to an end. To warn against the danger of false teaching. To remind us of the reality of the second coming. To urge us to renewed godliness and to encourage and strengthen us by divine grace. Christ has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. May we pay attention to the words of the prophets and the apostles. Seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus and then having a, a glimpse of his loveliness. Having just caught a glimpse of his beauty and his glory. May we be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish counting the patience of the Lord Jesus' salvation, taking care not to be carried away by the error of lawless people, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter. We thank you that you, by your spirit, inspired the Apostle Peter to write these words, not only for the churches of the first century, but for us, for our encouragement and our comfort, for our exhortation that we might be stirred up by way of reminder to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. May we faithfully obey. May our lives be conformed to your word. And God, I pray that we, your people, this church here, Christ Fellowship Church, will be careful and, and be aware and be on guard to protect ourselves against false teachers and false teachings that, that so slyly infiltrate the congregation. And I pray that you'll guard us and keep us according to your word. And may we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May we be rooted and grounded in his grace. May we grow in knowledge through the scriptures. May we grow into maturity. We pray for the leadership here. And pray that they might be faithful to keep a close eye on both their doctrine and on their lives. Pray that this congregation will be 
filled with people who love Jesus and want to know him more and are diligent to be found without spot or blemish in that peace. And God, we pray that the gospel will continue to go forth, the, the true gospel, the pure gospel, the powerful gospel. And we pray for those that are here today who have never trusted in Christ. Pray for those who have heard the gospel over and over and over again and have, have still refused to come. We pray that your spirit will do a, a powerful work in their hearts even today, causing them to be born again, opening up their blind eyes to see the glory of Christ, drawing them to Jesus, their only hope, so that they might be saved. God, we pray that as we leave here, as, as we leave here meditating upon your word, thinking upon Second Peter, may your church be established, may it grow and mature, be strengthened, that it might be salt and light here in Lawton. We pray that we'll be found faithful at Christ's coming. We love you. We long for Jesus to come. We thank you for his patience and his long suffering that he gives time for all to repent and come to a, a knowledge of the truth. But still our hearts yearn to see him. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in his great and powerful and precious name. Amen.